Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast. This week, as Sinn Féin enters coalition talks with Fianna Fáil, is Ireland's election result part of a broader European trend? Plus, Number 10 is going to war over the deportation of a number of Jamaican detainees. So, is citizenship a privilege or a right? And finally, what makes South Korea's pop culture quite so successful? First up, Sinn Féin's victory took everyone, including the party itself, by surprise. But the economist Frederick Erickson writes in this week's cover piece that it's part of a wider European trend. Across the continent, populist politicians are taking ground from mainstream parties, and Frederick writes that only the mainstream parties that adapt can survive. Joining me to discuss now is Fraser Nelson, our editor, and Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And Frederick's piece this week looks at what happens when times change but parties don't, and he starts with the example of Ireland. Why do you think Sinn Féin did so well in last weekend's election? Well, I think that the piece puts his finger on something very interesting, which is a certain kind of politician on the international stage, particularly on the European stage, who fare better outside their own country than within it. And Leo Varadkar, I think, fell into that trap. He's clearly had a sort of nationalist insurgency on his hands. His attention often seems to be somewhere else. It seemed to be very much tied up with Europe, with his close relationship with France and with President Macron and a bit with, with Brexit. Angela Merkel, you could say, also comes a bit into that category and the piece goes on to discuss her. I think there are, yeah, there, there are various reasons why Sinn Féin at this moment should find itself able to take a large share of the vote. But one big reason is that Leo Varadkar represents a kind of centrist progressive politics that feels like it's on the back foot and not only in Ireland. Fraser, the broader point of the piece is that the middle has shifted. Do you see it that way? Very much so. I mean, right now, when people are trying to understand Boris Johnson, to a lot of people, he is from a fringe of the Tory right. I mean, Philip Hammond described him as being a sort of a far-right ambassador from the loony wing. But when you look at Brexit, can you really say Brexit is an extreme agenda, given that by definition, because it's backed by half of the country. Therefore, it can't be fringe. When you talk about left and right, we're used to these sort of late 90s economic axes where you've got basically capital and labour or high taxes or low taxes and the successful parties have been the ones that go in the middle. That was the, the Blairite lesson, one replicated all over Europe. But right now there is a new political axis, I think, one between globalism and nationalism. And what I think Boris Johnson's done is chosen the middle way between these two. And in doing so, he is a centrist. He is not a nationalist because he is not, uh, look like his form of Brexit. It is, it is one where, for example, he's um, saying he wants more high-skilled immigrants. It's about managing globalisation better, not about turning your back on it. This is not a little England agenda, even though a lot of Remainers thought it was. And I can understand why they might think it was that. There is such a thing as a globally-minded leave. The, the vote leave agenda was a globalist agenda. It was just about doing globalism in a way that brought with it greater public consent. So people like me, I put myself down as being the typical latte-sipping, kale-munching metropolitan elite chap, right? That is, I plead guilty to every cliche in the book about that. 
And the last 10, 15 years have been pretty good for people like me. I'm sitting here with my foreign wife. If I sit, I, I, I have this... Actually sitting here yes, with me. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, there's sometimes exactly there is the a room, wife. But... Yeah. But you, you, you know it is. And people, people like you and me have done pretty well for the last 15, 20 yes. years. It's been great thinking our little purple passports allows us to live and work anywhere in Europe. I like the fact that my kids could do it. I like the fact that I could do it. It, it gave me greater opportunities. It allowed me to... You know, to start a relationship with somebody in another country and it, it just makes things easier if you're a very well-educated graduate but there are some people for whom it made things harder and you need to give them a little bit more concession but for instance, some of these parties are more nationalistic i mean do they not worry you oh parties yeah like they're the awful AFD by the way the afd yeah. there's a whole bunch of populist parties who are truly appalling and to see them getting to see le pen get a third of the support in france this is appalling now, the thing here is populism is, in my opinion, always and everywhere an, uh, an expression of the failure of established parties to react to new concerns that voters have. Either the new parties react, and if they do, then you get Britain. We've got no populist in Parliament, the only European country for whom that's true. No populist with any public support. Again, pretty much the only country in Europe for whom that's true. But Frederick Eriksson identifies the Danish left, the Danish Social Democrats, as a party that's also made concessions towards this new middle ground and as a result has cut in half the number of populists. So you've got the Danish left and the British right who are going towards what Eriksson describes as a new centre. It may be a new centre. I suspect that it's not a particularly stable centre. Everything you say is true, but what to do about it or how it then cashes out in the politics of individual countries, I think, is, is much more risky, perhaps, than this prospectus indicates. When you talk about you can make a kind of do a deal on the, the Danish model, the social democrats start to be a bit more anti-immigration. They they take on board the kind of concerns, Fraser, that you were, were mentioning. But if you look at what's happened in Norway, which was held up as a model of the way that you could have absorb the so-called Progress Party, which confusingly is the anti-immigrant party, well, they've just crashed out of Erna Solberg's coalition and left over the minority government. So one of the things I think people are mistaking is the fact that you can make the analysis and the verdict is, I'm sure, correct on how we got into this mess. It's not so easy to see how to get out of it by simply absorbing these parties. They are unstable entities. But absorbing the parties, you're right, but absorbing their voters, I mean, that is where the opportunity lies. So Um, move away from your existing values and position. Well, you can say, look at Brexit, right? Was that moving away from the Conservative value and position? It was certainly updating it. But if people have got new concerns, basically the nation state is back. Borders are back. People look to the nation state state for social protection, social cohesion, understandably so. Is that a radical, extreme, or right-wing thing? It's certainly, the nation-state was out of fashion in the late 90s, but when it comes back into vogue, then parties, I think, ought to respond to the demand, because if they don't, the populists will. And we've seen, another thing that Frederick Eriksson talks about is in Germany, uh, Merkel's CDU has said, okay, we hate the AFD, they are really extreme, we're not going to have anything to do with them. And then they find out in one of these state elections that their own local CDU is getting into bed with the AFD. So time and time again, this court and sanitaire is collapsing. The established parties are ending up doing deals with the populists. Now, Britain, the Tories were supposed to do a deal with Brexit party, but they said, no, we're not going to do a deal with them. We are going to crush them. The correct response. I've got to tell you something about Turing, just because I think I might be the only guest on your podcast who went to university in Turing for a while. Ah. In Ilmenau, this beautiful 
small cities, there's a fantastic Airfoot Cathedral, must go, you know, it's a very, very beautiful part of the country. It's always had, and this goes back in history, this more reactive politics, even mm. in the eventful and over-eventful history of, of German <laughs> politics. Right? And one of the things, that, looking back, it was, it was Eisenach, in, during was where the Social Democratic Party was first formed in Germany. If you go back to 1817, it had something called the Wartburg Conference. I'm sure your listeners remember it well. The Wartburg Conference was a kind of old Jeremy Corbyn moment for the Lutheran movement in Germany. 500 students and this sense of Lutheran values being turned into a kind of what we'd now call a quite left political prospectus. So the AFD, although it's shocking, and I completely agree that I think the establishment in Berlin, as it is in this case, doesn't quite, can't quite believe that this is all unraveled as fast as it has. But a history would have told them that Turing and also very enthusiastically pro-Hitler in that time, mm. and actually very communist in the East German time, that there are often pockets of countries that drive a kind of change that the elites of the day at the centre, whoever they are, find very hard to control. There is that as well as this perhaps broader thesis across Europe that Frederick lays out. Yeah, and I guess the question for all the centrist parties is how do you respond to populism? That's been mm. the great challenge of the last 10 years. And the British way, we've got this funny little parliamentary system where we always absorb the agenda of challengers. Not all of the agenda, but a good chunk of it. You had Jimmy Goldsmith's referendum party. So Tony Blair decides, okay, they're problematic, so I'm going to have a policy of having a referendum on whether we join the euro or not. That was the end of Goldsmith. So we have tended to let these challenges... We absorb it. Yeah, we absorb, we let well, it be Has that not been actually quite successful? Though? Hugely successful. And if you look at what's happening in Europe, it's the intransigence. Varadkar doesn't move at all. Merkel doesn't move at all. Macron doesn't really move at all. And as a result, because of that intransigence, because of not admitting that people might have a point on wanting the nation state back a border control, their centre ground gets smaller and smaller and smaller and the opening for populists get bigger and bigger and bigger. You're assuming you can only move sort of rightwards in this, or vaguely. Is it right? It I, well, yeah, I, know, I knew you were going to quibble with me. I knew you well enough. Towards, so, towards but, the nationalist side of the spectrum, yes, in my new right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, I, yeah, absolutely, except that description. But I was about to say, well, Merkel has actually moved, she moved leftwards. And I think sometimes there is a view and it doesn't, it hasn't entirely not worked, has it? Because she's still able to be in power. She's still the power in the land. She's, you know, 14 years on. It's not bad going, is it? Imagine Boris Johnson's heading for that. She tried really to find the votes the other way. She moved leftwards on economic policy on things like uh, rights for renters in the big cities. And so migrant policy. Whereas the we, migrant we, policy would be another good example of that. I think that came a bit from the heart. I mean, you, you know, I know sure. we've argued about it before in this podcast and what really drove it. But it, uh, pointing out that you can move the other way as well. And that sometimes I suppose you could say that Macron has also moved in France, hasn't he? He's absorbed some of the gilets jaunes concern. Yeah, that's right. But I have to say that um, I don't think Macron's trying to do it, but you've got mayoral elections coming up in France. And unlike Britain, these mayoral elections really matter. And you know right now that Macron's going to lose huge amounts of ground to Le Pen. He's having three defections this week from his party. He's he's now almost in danger of losing his majority. So Macron was supposed to be this great centrist revival, but it simply isn't working for him. You've got the strikes, the scenes in France. It's hard to look at any 
anywhere where centrism or the old centrism is doing well. But in Britain, I would argue, you can see the new centrism, which has provided a stable parliament, five years of stability, which has been the antidote to populism. And we've got a country which is pretty good at accepting and integrating immigrants. That's I think politics. What about the economics? Because what we don't know yet, uh, I don't want to be sort of completely eeyore about this, but I'm probably most worried about the economic fallout from this more than I am about people said preaching that this is a terrible jackboot nationalism I think you're right to mm. put that in more context and to be more measured about it there are some aspects of it that you can like or not like depending what, what your ear picks up on but if, if this is to if borders are back your phrase mm-hmm. how do you then make that work when you're slightly cutting off Michael Gove is now out there saying there is going to be more friction in trade well that wasn't exactly on the tin was it when the Brexit was was put to the population it's not clear that it works very well in that technocratic sense, even if it satisfies the dissatisfactions of the electorate. If you're saying, does this mean we're going to get lower GDP as a result? Yes, you're right. But I tell you the great mistake, which I used to make and I think a lot of people have made, is basically thinking that maximum GDP growth is the ultimate arbiter. I mean, during the Brexit referendum, the Remainer said quite rightly, look at this, this is going to mean GDP is not going to be quite as big as it was. It's going Rather than grow by 17%, it's going to grow by 14%. And to their amazement, this was not a winning argument. People thought, yes, we'll take that trade. Now, this, by the way, same same is true of Scottish nationalism. I used to, when I grew up, people thought you couldn't possibly vote for separatism because Scotland would be a lot poorer. Uh, And they show graphs showing that yes, England subsidised Scotland, and then all of a sudden you find that the argument doesn't work. But it did work in Scotland. Oh well, at the very last minute and only just. But people are willing. First of all, people don't think they benefit particularly much. There's a whole bunch of this country who don't think they're going to benefit from economic growth, and they've got nothing to lose. They wouldn't mind upsetting the apple cart because they think those apples are rotten. And but you then, come back again to what people think, and it's important, but there's also the sort of outcomes can't only be about what people's reactions or gut reactions are. There has to be, I mean, do you feel comfortable about saying this is a country that is going to have lower GDP? Uh, yes, if I think that's a democratic choice that people make. And I think it is right now. This is it. I mean, I, as Lara knows, love graphs. I've got <laughs> thousands well, you got a woman of. Adam noticed that. Prison. He is yeah. a marriage. Uh, <laughs> but but you, you just cannot look at a graph and work out the one that maximizes GDP is the best. People are making the democratic choice to bring back borders, to bring back friction in pursuit of greater social cohesion, even if that means that we're not going to be as richer as we would otherwise be. I think it's a relatively small difference, by the way. I think it's, we're not, nobody's talking about becoming poorer. We're forfeiting potential growth. But that is a trade-off. Well, that that's growth that goes through your, to make. the NHS. It's to make uh, well, better education systems. Is this growth, I think when it, you say forfeiting potential growth, you are still losing it is, out. Well, you and I might be losing. It tends to go to people like you and me more than it does those at the bottom. That's the slightly depressing well, it doesn't if you depend more on public services if you're at the, the lower end of the income scale. Well, I'm not. One, one of the great problems is that the GDP growth of recent years has not been as evenly shared as it could have been. And that is why you've got a whole bunch of people who think globalisation wasn't working for them. It was working for the graduates, it was working for the metropolitans, but it wasn't working for the towns. And they wanted a new system, a new settlement. We should let the host back in. I think we'll have to stop it there. Fraser and Anne, thank you very much. And to hear more from Anne, she interviews the economist Thomas Piketty on Economist Radio this week. Hello, comrades. 
I'm Benedict Spence. And I'm Andy Shaw. And we're here to tell you about That's Life, the new satirical podcast from Spectator Life, where we sit down with comedians, commentators, uh, misanthropes and anybody else we can find to poke fun at the people, events and ideas that have been in the news. From comedian Jeff Norcott to journalist Julia Hartley Brewer, join us and our guests for a sideways look at the world today. Find us on Spectator Radio or on your usual podcast app. Earlier this week, a group of Jamaican nationals were due to be deported. A last-minute judicial review stopped the flights and saved some of the people from deportation. The deportees all hold criminal records for crimes ranging from drug possession to manslaughter, but critics argue that many of them have been in the UK since childhood. Rod Liddell asked in this week's issue whether citizenship should be a right or a privilege. To discuss, I'm joined by Bella Sankey, director of the charity Detention Action, which brought the legal challenge, and Mercy Muroki, a columnist for the Times Red Box. Bella, can you start by bringing listeners up to speed as to what's been happening this week with regards to the deportations and how the legal challenge went that you were involved with? Yeah, of course. So my organisation, Detention Action, works uh, in the Heathrow Detention Centres, supporting people that are detained there. And we provide practical and emotional support. Uh, We noticed as far back as mid-January that the phone lines in the centres weren't uh, working and people were telling us and becoming increasingly concerned that they hadn't been able to access uh, their friends, speak to their loved ones, but most crucially hadn't been able to speak to lawyers. Uh, So we were very worried about this, particularly because we knew there was a charter flight of deportations that was going to take place uh, on the 11th of February and that the Home Office was seeking to return 50 people to Jamaica. We launched some legal action. The government responded to that by accepting that there was a problem with mobile phone signal and that people didn't have access to lawyers and saying that they would buy some more SIM cards. In the event, it became clear to us over over the last weekend that people People still did not have working phones and access to lawyers. Uh, So we went back to the Court of Appeal on Monday this week uh, with our evidence of this. And the Court of Appeal agreed with us that the Home Office had not implemented their own policy, which says in really clear terms that people that are going to be removed forcibly from the country need five working days with a working phone to contact lawyers and to access justice. Uh, so, So the Court of Appeal handed down its judgment, the government appealed, and the Court of Appeal rejected that appeal. And it's as a result of the Court of Appeal's judgment that 25 people that were going to be on this flight were not ultimately deported. So the flight did go, but there were 17 people on the flight rather than the 50 that government was hoping to put on. And what do we know about these 50 people who are being deported Are they British citizens? No, so strictly speaking, the government says that none of them are British citizens. There, there may be doubts in certain cases because as the Windrush scandal brought up, uh, there are people in the UK who uh, may be British citizens but don't have the right documentation. So there are some queries over that. But by and large, these are individuals who uh, do not have citizenship, but the vast majority of them have been in the, in the UK for a really long time. And most of them have been here since they were children. But am I right in thinking they also have criminal records and that's why they're being deported? That's right. So the law as it stands says that if you have a criminal conviction of 12 months or over, a criminal sentence of 12 months or over, then there's an automatic power that the Home Office will pursue you for deportation. And that was a law that came in in 2007. Mercy, what have you made of this case? Do you think the government was right to be deporting these people to Jamaica? 
what if anything this um, has highlighted is that there really is a need for clarity. I think firstly there's an issue on clarity in terms of the legality of people's kind of status. If they're not sure they're British, I think that's something that we really need to ensure that people are being made aware of and being made aware of their rights, especially in cases like this where they have committed a crime. And I think we also need a lot of clarity about what the government is legally allowed to do in respect to foreign criminals, because, you know, ultimately there there is a lot of grey areas and the public do very much feel that it's a moral uh, conversation uh, that we need to have about this. But before that, I think it's really important that people who do are in this country and who have been here for a long time, um, like myself, I've, I wasn't born in this country. I came here when I was five and I, I know I'm a British citizen because I have a British passport. I personally don't know whether the government would have a right to deport me if, you know, not saying I would commit a serious crime, but I, I wouldn't know my rights in that circumstance. Bella, do you think the government have provided any clarity? Uh, well, I think those are really interesting points. I think I think there is a real lack of understanding generally about how our nationality and citizenship rules work. They've changed a lot over the last few decades as well, which sort of further complicates the picture. And that was one of the big issues with Windrush because it meant that people hadn't appreciated the changes, thought they were citizens when they weren't. And also there is a lot of barriers to citizenship, which is really problematic. So um, it's very expensive to naturalise as a British citizen. Uh, Even children have been being charged over £1,000 to become British citizens. And so, you know, there are all sorts of things, sort of disincentives to citizenship that I don't think should be there. In terms of the government's response, I don't think the government is... I don't think the government is providing clarity. I think, if anything, what's been quite disappointing this week is that the government has been muddying the waters. So I'm sure that some of your listeners will have heard government's kind of lines and and they really have focused almost exclusively on the most violent offences that people have committed who, who were due for deportation. And the problem with that is this is a group of individuals with very diverse stories. Mm. Um, and a lot, lot of stories are at the kind of more mild end. So a lot of... Yeah, so a lot of my clients are people that got mixed up in drug dealing, um, in in drug supplying in their teens. Um, Many of them were actually groomed into county lines operations, and that's obviously something we've only relatively recently come to know about and to understand better. I also have clients who have been the victims themselves of crimes, and it's all kind of part of the grooming process. A lot of my clients have one-off offences. They say, you know, I made a mistake when I was a teenager. I was, you know... It all went wrong. I made bad decisions, but I'm now rehabilitated and I want a shot at life. Um, And the other missing piece from the jigsaw puzzle that I think government hasn't, you know, given enough attention to is that many of these individuals have families here. They have their own children now. Um, I have one client with six children under 10. Uh, He's been here since he was eight and he has a British wife. Um, If he was removed, we're essentially making her a single mother trying to raise six children. Mercy, Rod Little makes the point in his column this week that these people do have criminal records and that they're not British citizens. I mean, do you th- and he, he then goes on to say he thinks the public will think it's sort of fair enough that they're being deported. I mean, what what would you say to that? Well, I think I would say it is very much fair enough in so many people's eyes because intuitively you kind of think, well, if people come here um, from other nations and they're foreign nationals and they commit offences and they commit serious offences then it should be right that 
the elected British government should have the authority to be able to deport those people. I think what has come to light is that the picture is a lot more complex in many of these cases. Some people are, um, you know, very violent criminals. They've created, um, they've um, committed very serious offences. But on the lower end, as we've just heard, it's it's quite complicated and. Um, it does make you wonder, you know, is it worth it if the problems that are going to be created, especially where people have families and children here in Britain, whether it is worth it. But I think it's brought to light a lot of complicated issues that we have. We need to have a national conversation about. Well, one complicated issue is that, as Jeremy Corbyn pointed out at PMQs this week, it seems to be a matter of race. I mean, do, do, you, do you agree with that? Um, I mean, I, of course when we're talking about Jamaican um, nationals and Caribbean nationals and when we bring Windrush into it, people are always going to say there is a racial element now. But also you have to remember that the majority of foreign nationals who are returned to their countries are EU citizens, the majority of whom are white. So I, I think to, to make this a race issue and to kind of pretend that the Home Office is just, you know, trying to get rid of all these Caribbean um, nationals. It's not true when you look at the figures. But, you know, I think when it comes to Labour, and they obviously do have this kind of um, agenda, especially with uh, figures like uh, David Lammy and Diane Abbott, they will always kind of push the narrative that anything the Conservative government does in terms of immigration does have a racialized element to it. That is kind of the line they have to stick to. Yeah, I I think um, as far as the law goes, it's not the case that this power to deport applies more to one racial group or one um, nationality than, than another. It, ac- it applies across the piece. But I think race comes into it because We've seen the, what happened over the, the Windrush debacle. The hostile environment that kind of led to that was all about bringing immigration control very much away from the border and, and into our communities, into our societies. So Theresa May's reforms meant that landlords started doing immigration checks, medical professionals started doing immigration checks, effectively sort of outsourcing immigration control. And the reason why Windrush happened is because a lot of people don't have ready documentation of their migration status. And so suddenly people weren't able to access healthcare, people weren't able to rent their homes. And you had this awful escalation situation that meant you know people died and people lost their lives and lost their livelihoods lost their health and that was a really terrible experience for the black British community it was invariably people of color that were most affected because if you're doing a check if you're a landlord and you're 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 doing a check there's a a kind of built-in incentive to offer your 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 rental property to somebody that you can be really sure is British, so somebody that um, is white, somebody that sounds British, and, and and all the rest of it. That was such a, a you know such a landmark event, Windrush. I think it really did shake the nation quite considerably. The parallels this time are there. The, the people that are being caught up, particularly with the Jamaica flight on Tuesday, are ultimately the great granddaughters, the grandsons, the nieces, the nephews of the Windrush generation that came over. And I think, you know, show me a family where one member of it hasn't committed an offence that would get them 12 months in prison if they had been discovered. You know, I, 
I honestly don't think there are many families out there that can hold their hands up and say uh, that they would fall into that category. And so if you're going to start clamping down and, 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 and arranging charter flights where you're deporting 50 people, of course that is going to feel hurtful to a community that has so recently gone through a huge trauma. Yeah, I think, okay, I think, um, you know, you are right. Of course, the things that happened to the Windrush generation um, were awful. And I think the government has made that quite clear. Where I'm not, you know, completely sold is that it was deliberately done because those people were Caribbean or because those people were black. Yes, it was part of kind of this hostile environment policy. But ultimately, I think what it goes down to is that because... The vast majority of immigrants in the country now are from the EU. And of course, documentation, because of the length of time that we've been in the EU compared to kind of when Windrush generation came to Britain, the um, the documentation for those EU immigrants is going to be more readily available to, for them to prove their immigration status, not that they really ever need to anyway, because, well, we're not in the EU anymore, but because they had kind of a right to live here automatically and to work here so I think part of it was because there was such a lack of clarity and mistakes were made on the home office's part in terms of preserving the documentation so I think a large part of it has been a massive administerial failing so I think to move the conversation in the direction of racializing it and saying that there's definitely a racial element and it's it is because they were black I think is the wrong thing to do and it really kind of um, misses the nuances and the other failings that we do need to address. Mercy and Bella thank you very much. Hello I'm Isabel Hardman. Hello I'm James Forsyth. And I'm Katie Balls and you can join us all every day for Coffee House Shots, our daily politics podcast. Just search on the iTunes store or an alternative phone provider. And why not leave us a review if you like it? And the Oscar goes to... Parasite. And finally, this week, for the first time ever, the Oscar for Best Picture went to a foreign language film directed by the South Korean director Boon Jong-ho. In this week's issue, Professor Rana Mitter writes that it's not just films that South Korea excels in, but also literature and music, with K-pop now a global phenomenon. So, how has a country smaller than Bulgaria done all this? Rana joins me down the line from Oxford, together with Andrew Heskins, the founder of easternkicks.com, a review website specialising in Asian film. Rana, you write in your piece this week that Parasite's just the latest example of what you refer to as the Korean wave. Can you start by explaining to listeners how this cultural phenomenon has developed? Yes, the, the Korean wave is something that's really been breaking, so to speak, over the last 30 years or so, really ever since Korea democratized in the late uh, 1980s. And what it refers to is this actually very unexpected phenomenon that this important, but in territorial terms, relatively small country in East Asia has essentially become a power generator of cultural power for not just itself, but the whole Asia region and beyond. So essentially, it was a combination of initiatives by the South Korean governments at the time who wanted to basically give 
South Korea more cultural clout in the wider world. So subsidized film, music, all sorts of other things, but also the growth in a real artistic sensibility, whether it's these very black comedies like Parasite, which has just won all these Oscars, whether it's the growth of perhaps the single phenomenon that people may know most about if they're not in Asia. And that, of course, is K-pop, this hugely successful sort of boy band, girl band phenomenon, and also other lesser known things, including a growing South Korean literary scene as well. So you could say it's both top down, the, the government helping to sponsor it, but also bottom up, a real cultural flowering that comes from South Korea and goes on much further than that. You also say in your piece that lots of South Koreans aren't particularly happy about the way the country is developing. And, and there's this phrase that you use, hell chosen. I hope I'm saying that right. Can you can you explain how that fits in with, with the sort of the cinema scene there as well? So that phrase hell chosun actually is using the term chosun, which is a slightly archaic way of referring to Korea. It's a term that historians use, but it's being used here with a sort of black irony. And I have to say that the more and more one finds out about South Korea's popular culture, the more the words black irony tend to come up. And Parasite, obviously, as I say, is a, a good example of that. This idea of hell chosun, which was perhaps a little bit more common even a couple of years ago, but still still out there, is actually something that's very familiar to people in some ways who live in places like Britain or the United States. The economy's growing, the country's not poor, very far from being poor, it's prosperous. And yet somehow there's a sense both that young people can't get on the career ladder, they can't get a good job, they can't afford somewhere to live. And there's a sort of existential sense of, of anime. I remember sitting in Seoul during a visit there for the BBC a couple of years ago, in which my producer and I were made to sit on a kind of bare wooden floor in front of a man playing what he called noise music, which is basically kind of the scratching sounds of an old fashioned record player without actually any any music. And when asked about this, he basically expressed said that this was his expression of dissatisfaction with his own rather uh, unsatisfying low middle class life in, in Seoul. So that kind of sense of anomie, I think, is is part of it. Andrew, you're the founder of Eastern Kicks, an Asian film review website. I mean, how important do you think South Korean film has been over the past decade? Over the last two decades, really, I think. When it started to get noticed internationally, properly noticed um, in the noughties and the beginning of that Hallyu Korean wave, it was very, very influential. I think, you know, probably perhaps more so in Asia and, and, and what was going on than than the few films that we were seeing here that would occasionally pop up, you know, like the, the likes of Old Boy and so on, that, that, that really started to get noticed. But you can see its influence throughout Asia. I mean, I was thinking, you know, that, that there are a lot of, for instance, in China, there are a lot of films that are, that are quite directly referencing Korean films. You know, so it has been quite a phenomenon, and, you know, particularly with the, the, the musical sense that, that kind of took over the various scenes from China to you know, Taiwan to kind of all over. And are there particular themes that South Korean film tends to return to? Is, is it considered kind of particularly avant-garde for Asian films? Not at all. I would say the one thing that's happened in the last 20 years, so the, when it began, it was quite edgy, it was quite experimental. It was before the big commerce got into Korean films and they started to become successful throughout East Asia. There were, there were much edgier films. Yes, there, there are lots of themes that came to come up, and it feels in the last 10 years that, that these have been worn down to really this very... You get the sort of same type of film, so you might have sort of a crime thriller-type film, there'll be a sort of police procedural stroke serial killer film, there'll be... There's a lot of indie films, but they all tend to take the, the Hong Sang-soo route of 
it'll be very autobiographical about a director who probably drinks a lot in bars and, you know, in, in some cases might might uh, be attracted to a woman who's maybe not much more than half his age, you know, and, and then you get other, you know, the, the, there's, there's film world directors doing the same thing and actually appearing in those films. So it, in some ways, as somebody who's watched Korean film grow over the last 20 years, I do feel like that, that actually a lot of the edginess has kind of been worn off. We're, we're getting very, a lot of films are quite commercial. There's often not much interest in kind of stretching out beyond that and doing things that are particularly experimental anymore, which is a bit of a shame. I mean, I think you've you've described extremely well the arc that Korean film seems to have taken over that time, including this kind of growing commercialization. But one of the things I talk about a bit in the article in this week's Spectator, and also uh, I have to say other podcasts are sometimes available. So uh, on uh, BBC Sounds, I've also got a documentary (laughs) on South Korean's Korean's cultural, uh, cultural wave. So if you're not listening to the spectator podcast then you might be able to slip that one in (laughs) one of the phenomena is the way in which the reflections of korea's recent history and asian history more broadly seems to be fought out in a kind of political battle by proxy through various films so the two films i i I mentioned that context were big hits in korea over the last decade or so one was called international market in korean i think the, the english title is ode to my father which was essentially a sort of forrest gump politically quite conservative, in many ways very supportive of the period of dictatorship back in the 60s and 70s, arguing that, you know, it's the story of a man who kind of fought through that time to make a living, not very keen on the democratization side of things. On the other side, a film with the uh, title The President's Barber, which was basically a black political satire, a fictional one about someone who became the barber to the dictatorial president at the time and ends up with his little boy actually getting sort of electrocuted. I mean, not not fatally, but nonetheless pretty, pretty nastily on screen. And it seemed that the kind of continuing gap in contemporary South Korean democratic politics between the people who still have a certain kind of nostalgia for that conservative authoritarian rule and the people who say that once we democratized, we really needed to be a much more liberal society. You can see it in the cinema in, in in all sorts of ways Ron I was going to ask you about there's a very interesting stat or fact in your piece where you say that when the music industry was hit by illegal downloads in 2009 the government gave K-pop a 91 million dollar bailout saying it wanted to globalize its pop industry is this is this unique to South Korea that it's sort of pop culture is so heavily supported by the state well It is very, very distinctive. Unique is perhaps a little too strong because in some ways the very different society of China, which of course still is an authoritarian society, has an awful lot of state money going into cultural production and propaganda, which includes music. There there are Chinese communist rappers, although I have to say that they're not generally very well regarded, I think, in the, the wider rap community. But South Korea, I think, is distinctive in being a democratic society where nonetheless the state is really putting a lot of money into culture. The way in which you have to think about this is actually as an industry. If you think about the big Korean names around the world, Samsung, LG, uh, Hyundai, cars. Actually, the K-pop industry is more profitable, I think, than, than even some of, uh, some of those. There are three big corporations which basically have a production line that produce the girl bands and boy bands that become famous as, as K-pop uh, stars, and which, of course, operate in different languages. There are plenty of bands which have one version of the song in Chinese, one in Japanese and one in Korean for, for different markets. Now, if you're running an industry that has that level of complexity and it starts to go down, then 
as happens in various other places in the world, the government will put in an industrial subsidy just as Nissan or Hyundai or someone might get an injection of funds from the government to keep a car factory going. In some ways, I think it's it's a very similar gesture. Andrew, for listeners who are thinking of getting into Asian film and South Korean film in particular, where would you suggest they start? Is Parasite a good place to start or is there something Parasite, better? Parasite is a good place to start. I think, you know, you, you couldn't do yourself any harm by watching all of Bong Joon-ho's films. And he's he's not exactly a, a prolific director. So, you know, over the last 20 years, he's made, what, about eight films? I do love the work of Hong Sang-soo, which we were talking about earlier, very biographical, a lot of the conversations in bars. Thinking about recent stuff, I find it more difficult because there's so many films that do feel like they're in this kind of the same model. It's very commercial, very enjoyable, but just lacks the edge that, that, that we got from the films of Park Chan-wook and uh, some of the other filmmakers like Kim Ji-woon back in the, in the early noughties. And Rana, is there one that you might recommend for our listeners? Well, I'll give you one more title, which is Im Sang-soo's Sang 2005 film The President's Last Bang. And the title refers to the assassination in 1979 of the then president of Korea, dictatorial president Park Chung-hee. This was a huge national trauma at the time. So the idea of making a black comedy about this film was quite something. So much so that President Park's uh, surviving family actually basically launched a copyright suit to prevent the filmmaker from using um, footage from the real funeral in his film, which where he then released it into the cinemas with two minutes missing from the, from the, right. uh, the screen until the South Korean High Court re- reversed the decision and allowed him to put the footage back in. So you get both a very, very black comedy and a little slice into contemporary South Korean politics, which are fantastically interesting in their own right. Thank you, Rana and Andrew. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you pick up the issue of the magazine, you can read everything we've talked about, as well as Susan Hill's diary, Freddie Gray, who's writing from New Hampshire, and Douglas Murray on why he'll never become an MP. And we've got that special offer. For £12, you can get 12 issues of The Spectator, plus a free commemorative Brexit butterfly mug if you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash mug. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week. (laughs) 